death and taxes. <coughs> These are meant to illustrate things that are certain. Death and taxes. If you think about it, though, death and taxes aren't really on the same plane. I think one is more certain than the other. You couldn't really say that death is as certain as taxes. Now, that might work to an extent, but you could probably figure out loopholes or scenarios that a person might be in to avoid taxes. If you really wanted to illustrate certainty, you would have to say that taxes are as certain as death. That provides a better ground to prove what's inescapable. It's an airtight case. You might have uh, scenarios where someone goes untouched by taxes, but no scenarios where someone goes untouched by death. Okay, you biblical scholars, you can probably point a couple, Enoch, Elisha, okay. But for as unavoidable that death and taxes are, or more specifically, unavoidable as subjects like death and the temporary nature of life, as unavoidable as those things are, we sure make every effort to avoid dealing with those. If there is any discussion about the brevity of life and about the certainty of death, the discussion usually goes only to the extent of practical stuff. So I remember growing up, one of my favorite things about staying home from school, whether on break or when I was sick, was getting to watch, believe it or not, daytime television. Because I never get to watch TV during the day. And 11 o'clock during the week, CBS, The Price is Right. And as I grew up, I still watched The Price is Right. And I quickly realized that, all right, I am not the demographic that they are marketing to. So I remember people like, you know, Alex Trebek, speaking of colonial pen life insurance. I remember Tom Cruise, not the cool Tom Cruise, the other Tom Cruise, speaking about the hover around electric scooter. Uh, and I remember Fred Thompson uh, speaking about reverse mortgages, and I had no idea what that was. <laughs> All of important issues, practical things. You know, even uh, in Germany, one cable network launched an entire channel, 24 hours a day, devoted to the practical side of dealing with what they called the last human experience. So, practical matters are important, but we're meant to go beyond them. While not without its oversights, the medieval era can give us lessons in how to reflect on the temporary nature of life, even the certainty of death. Shaped by the Christian worldview, many medieval artists, when they painted portraits, would include an image of a human skull in the portrait. It's not meant to be morbid. It's meant to be somber, sobering. Because for the medieval era, death was not seen as the final human experience. Death was seen as a doorway a doorway to eternity, a doorway to judgment. That's why the skull is included. Skull is meant to make those who saw it think about their temporary nature. It's meant to make them think about how they are preparing for that doorway. 
Well, the world around us leaves us uh, with the meaning of life and death as being vague at best. Most keep the brevity of life and the certainty of death at arm's length, at as far as distance as they can. And when they deal with it, it's usually just about the practical stuff. Or if they deal with it, it's very quickly and they move on. Just at the point of mystery or fascination. But in Psalm 90, Moses stares at the shortness and brevity of life in the face and he thinks about it. He doesn't leave. He goes beyond the practical side of it. So let's uh, read Psalm 90. Uh, it's the first psalm of book four in the collection of psalms. You'll find it on page 496. Looking at a red Bible like this in the pew rack in front of you. Page 496. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have been evil, have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of, our, of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's God's word. So if you keep the life language theme that we've had throughout this series of the Psalms, hopefully we're not forcing it too much into a box. Uh, but today, as with other Psalms we've studied, we've seen uh, different life languages, as we called it. Things like the language of wisdom and praise, assurance, confession, lament, doubt. When we look at Psalm 90, we could say that this Psalm has the language of reflection, the language of reflection. Moses takes two short, basic, but very important truths. God is eternal. Life is short. He takes fundamental truths like that and he dwells on them. He reflects on them. So how he handles these things, how he processes them, how he reflects on those truths 
related to the main point of Psalm 90. Life is short. God is eternal. Think about this. Steward it and pray about it. Life is short. God is eternal. Think about this. Steward it. Pray about it. And I mentioned Moses as the author of Psalm 90. This might sound surprising. Most of the Psalms are written at an era well after Moses. Uh, and if you know Moses at all, have any uh, Sunday school, children's church background, you might be surprised that Moses is into poetry. He's more of like a rugged individual, very stately leader. He's the guy who smashed the Ten Commandments. This guy wrote poems. Well, yes, this isn't the only one either. We read another one earlier, a song of Moses near the end of his life. There's another song of Moses after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. So Psalm 90, with Moses being the author, doesn't have to come as a huge shock. In fact, there are lots of similarities between Psalm 90 and the other songs Moses wrote. So taking it at face value, that Moses is the author of Psalm 90, we might ask, what made him talk about all this? What makes him reflect on these subjects and how short life is? Well, you'd think it'd have to be a really profound and deep moment of his life. Because the same thing works for us, too. That's when we reflect on these subjects the most. When we come to a crossroads, when we come to a loss. Even when we come to a huge gift that's too much for us, causes us to reflect. So I wonder, what could be a moment like that for Moses? I think a potential time when Moses would have considered, would have been so aware of how short life is in the inescapable nature of death, when he was so super aware of that, is the time described in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. If you want, uh, it might be helpful to keep your finger in Psalm 90, flip back to Numbers 20. Let's see if I can find a page number. Um, it's going to be page... 128, and you, without even reading Numbers 20, you can just look at the headings of this chapter and see that things are kind of piling on for Moses at this point. You first at the very beginning of Numbers 20, you see that Moses' sister dies, Miriam, who's been a leader of God's people, especially the women of God's people. Second, in Numbers 20, after 38 years of Moses putting up with grumbling and complaining people, Moses disobeys the Lord directly. And God tells him he will not enter the promised land. And then his, his brother is alongside him when he disobeys the Lord. And his brother, this chapter closes with Aaron dying. It's such a significant loss for the people of Israel that they stop everything that they're doing and grieve for a month. This is all this piling on for Moses in Numbers 20. I think that would cause you to reflect. You see how, consider the life of Moses and how much this guy has seen over his life up to that point. Over a hundred years worth. You think about, he saw the height of human achievement and luxury growing up in Egypt. He saw the depths of human desperation and poverty among his people in Israel. 
He would experience God's glory in many ways. He saw God come to him in a burning bush. He saw the plagues. He saw the splitting of the Red Sea. He spent 40 days with God on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law. He saw God's glory fill the tabernacle. All that Moses has seen. And Moses has seen and experienced firsthand the devastating consequences of sin. He witnessed the golden calf. He witnessed the plagues again. He witnessed Korah's rebellion. He witnessed resistance from his siblings, even Aaron and Miriam. He witnessed the constant grumblings, people around him begging somebody to put them back in slavery in Egypt. He saw an entire generation of people be wiped out by sin over 40 years in the wilderness. And then we get to Numbers 20. It's like everything comes to a head at that point for Moses. Moses' time is coming to an end. And for the guy who's seen and been through that much, and he comes face to face with the reality that he's fading away. How does he think about that? How does he think about that? Boy, it would be important for us to listen to somebody like that. But even, even before we really jump in what he thinks, what he says, I think it's important for us from the very outset to do what Moses is doing and to do like Asaph did in Psalm 73 last week. Asaph had hard questions, but he didn't leave them alone. He didn't just move on and not consider them. He wrestled through them. So Moses makes the effort to pause and think. How many of you rode in a car to get here today? Nobody flew here? Okay, good. If you did, I would have to talk to you afterwards and figure out what the deal is. How many driving in a car to places you've been before? Uh, I think every person here has been here to this building before. Ever driven in a car, you get in, even if you're not driving, you'd be a passenger. You get in and... You leave, and then you arrive at your destination, and like everything in between was just blank. You even know how you got there. It's pretty scary, isn't it? <laughs> but it happens all the time. There are lots of lessons you can pull out from that. But one of them is we often live like that. We often live kind of in a mindless autopilot because we're too busy, we're too lazy, too tired. And like driving, you might be able to hack it for a while on autopilot. But just like driving, it's a lot safer to be mindful when you're driving. So with living, it's a lot better to be mindful when you are living. The Lord wants us to engage in relating to him, not simply to go through the motions. So you might not feel like you're wired to reflect and ponder like Moses is. That's okay. It's probably easier for some people than it is for others. We're not meant to be superhuman philosophers. We're meant to take effort to stop, to think, to reflect. To be thoughtful enough to do that means to be thoughtful enough to regularly pause from always having to get to the next thing and just stop. It means bringing ourselves and our circumstances under the light of God's word. It means approaching God's word as more than just a textbook to study. 
but as revealing the God we worship and the one who shapes our hearts. So from the outset, what Moses does in just this very, very profound situation, he stops and reflects, doesn't just move on. He engages. He gets off of autopilot. What would it look like for you to do that in each area of, our, of your life? For you to stop the autopilot and start engaging with your relationship in the Lord? What would it look like if you thought through how you approached your issues, how you approach your habits, how you approach work, how you approach your relationships, how you approach your Bible reading, how you approach your prayer, how you approach coming to church? You actually thought through that and thought while you're doing that instead of autopilot. For me, just last note on this, uh, it's scary for me. Like, I can, I can go through the motions and go on autopilot preparing to preach a sermon. I think it's like five minutes. Like, oh my goodness. I'm just totally mindless in doing that. My Lord's kind to, to call me out of it. But I mm, need to engage. So here's Moses in Psalm 90. In a moment, he's just keenly aware of the facts of life and death. And how does he start? How does he begin to reflect on that? Well, the first part of his reflection comes in verses 1 and 2. We can label it God and people in the past. He's going to walk through several of its parts. This is the very first word, Lord. Lord. It's not a surprise that the guy who the Holy Spirit inspired to write the book of Genesis begins how he does here. Lord. Just like the entire Bible begins with God. So here, Moses begins with God. Only God is eternal. Only God is uncreated. Only God is perfectly self-sufficient. So since God is the starting point of all creation, he must be the starting point for all of our matters of life. That's what Moses starts with here. At a time when Moses feels just how short his life is, he feels his sinfulness. What does he do? He looks at the Lord. But even more specifically, he looks to all that the Lord has done for him. See the next phrase. Lord, you have been. You have been. Like we noticed before, all that Moses had saw in his life. Boy, that guy had a testimony. You have been. Could have looked back and seen so much. And what has God been to Moses and God's people? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And this has special significance if you consider the situation Moses is in and the rest of the Israelites are in. Because for some 400 years, they have literally had no physical dwelling place. And so Moses says, God, no, you've been our dwelling place. Though we've been rootless and homeless, though it seemed like that, we haven't been rootless and homeless. It's like Isaac Watts says in the hymn he wrote based on this psalm, we sang it earlier, God is our eternal home. It's a sweet image. So the lasting impression that we get from this first part of the reflection comes in the last phrase, of verse 2. The last phrase of verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
In other words, you always have been and you always will be. So why begin this way? Why start off in this way? Dwelling, not just, not just it's appropriate to think about God. Why think about this part of God, his eternality? Well, Moses is in the middle of despair, fear, looking to the future, seeing himself crumble, not knowing what's to come. So it's God's eternality that cures his despair and calms his fear. So he looks at past generations. It's like past generations, they felt the same way. They felt the fleeting nature of everything in this life. They can see everything around them and notice all this is going away. Moments in our life when that just, that hits us harder than in others. And what did past generations do? Past generations, when they see how this is all going away, they see how God isn't. It's summed up very well in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. It talks about Abraham and others. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they see the fleeting nature of everything. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Maybe it's hit you already and you brush it off. But all this is going away. And we'll reflect on this more, but for now, know that you don't have to despair at that. Whether it's the first time or the millionth time, when you feel the temporary nature of this place, look to the eternal God. So we might not just feel despair at the facts of life, cold hard facts of life. You also may fear. Notice how fear usually comes from uncertainty of, of what's to come next. Fear is often of the unknown. So fear may settle in for Moses since he's uncertain about what will happen to God's people after he's gone. He would, we would understand him if he feared that. Fear seems to be the state for much of book three of the Psalms. Even look at a, how a psalm like Psalm 88 ends. It has no final word of hope. So it's fitting that book four of the Psalms begins this way. So in fearing the unknown of what will happen, Moses looks to the eternal God and what has happened because of him. And he finds rest. That who God has been, he will continue to be. Speaking to a despairing and fearing Israel, the Lord spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So friends, how do we do the same? In the moments when we, just, when we feel, when we come face to face, that this life is short and it's coming to an end soon. 
How do we do the same? How do we look to the God who is eternal? How do we reflect on the God who has been to us an everlasting dwelling place? How do we assure us by who God has been to look at who he, who he will continue to be? I think we look three places, real quick, three places, looking at who God has been to us to assure ourselves of who he will continue to be. One, look at God's word. Look at God's word. Read of God's grace, making promises to sinful people and his faithfulness and power in keeping and fulfilling those promises. See how God has fulfilled his promise to purchase for himself a people through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God who paid for the sins of God's people. And we can't reflect on who God has been and read his word without reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, look to that every day. That we who are far off have been brought near to God. And over and over again, the Bible says who God has been to us guarantees who he will be to us in the future. Read that in Ephesians 2 later today, verses 4 to 10 specifically. Read that in Romans 8, verses 29 to 31, famous passage. Who God has been guarantees who he will be. You want to look to assure yourselves of who God has been? Look to the history of God's people. Read history. Read church history. Read the history of the early church, how God has sustained. Read history of different parts of the world, how God has sustained the church throughout the world. Read the history of individual lives and be encouraged how God has sustained them. Find good books. Number three, where to look to assure ourselves who God has been, how he's been faithful, how he has been our dwelling place. Well, friends, look to your own life and look to the lives around you. You know, speaking personally, uh, just looking at the last year, Today, this Sunday, is the one-year, if you can call it, anniversary of when I became officially the pastor of Old Oak Bible Church. It was just one year ago. I can look back and see all the ways God has been faithful. But I can look at the lives around me back at the year. It's a good practice at the end of the year. How God has been the dwelling place, how God's been faithful to other people. I'm going to embarrass them, but I've, I've spent time with a couple individuals. I've seen just the Lord been so faithful to uh, is my brother Nick Barnum and my sister, my Aunt Cheryl Brasty. I've seen the Lord be so faithful to you, uh, dear brother and dear sister. Um, I just praise God for it. Um, and this says we look to all generations. I don't know if you know, but there are multiple generations in this room. So, friends, speak to, young, speak to old. Old, speak to young and, and learn how God has been faithful to you, even in this past year. You don't have time to do that this afternoon. Well, we start with God, and God has provided, and there's evidence everywhere. The eternal God has been our dwelling place and will always be our dwelling place. It's not all that Moses reflects on. Second part comes in verses 3 to 11. Before, it was God and people in the past, and here, it's God and people in the present. Moses' reflection, the second part of it, we split it into two sections. First is like a truth, the second is explanation. The verses 3 to 6, you just glance at it. 
The basic truth is that life is short. Verses 3 to 6. Verses 7 to 11. The basic explanation is life is short because of sin. Life is short. Life is short because of sin. Remember, Moses just reflected on God's always has been and always will be. God's eternality. Now he's like David in Psalm 8. He looks back to himself. says, oh, I've had a physical start and I will have a physical end. I am utterly, utterly small against God's eternality. The finite is put in stark contrast against the infinite. So Moses says, we will return to dust. Quite literally, deteriorate. I don't know about you, I get evidence of this every day at home. It's, it's a myth that, that dust, that house dust is 75% like human skin, but it is some of human skin. But it, like, like that's a sign that we are returning to dust. God is all, always has been, always will be. So Moses continues. That means, that means God is on a different timetable than us. A thousand years to God is like a day for us. Think about a thousand years ago. Can you even? 1018? All the things that have happened in the world, in every place, to every individual, and all the circumstances. You couldn't fill this whole building. The whole building wouldn't have enough space. That's nothing to God. It's like a night watch. It's a casual work shift for the Lord. And what we have. So in other words, it's a reminder, it's a side note, to chill with panicking about your five-year plan. Because God, God is on his eternity plan. We see in verses 5 and 6, just other reminders all around us that we are fading fast. Image of a flood, how a flood can uh, make entire cities look like they've never existed. See pictures of the uh, most recent tsunami in Indonesia. See the image of a dream. The dreams are short. And it's funny, even the sweeter dreams are, the shorter they seem. Like the better sleep you have, like the, it seems like you have, you got less sleep. Fade quickly. It's like grass. Now here we could see in the summer, uh, you don't water your grass, there's no grain, it gets brown. You see that here? But uh, Moses, where he lived, he didn't live in northeast Ohio. Uh, good reminder. Um, where Moses lived, you can have a heavy rain. It's, it's hotter where he lived than it's here. Um, you have a heavy rain one night, an entire carpet of grass sprout up on the side of a hill. But the next day, it's hot. And by the evening, it can all go brown. Flood, dream, grass, grows and fades. That's like our life. Life is short. So Moses states what is just flat obvious if we think about it. But then in the second section of his reflection, verses 7 to 11, he shows the reason why life is short. It's because of God's curse for our sin against him. Again, we remember that Moses witnessed this time and time again. The wages of sin is death. So Moses reflects on this explanation in verses 7 to 11, and really it's, it's a continuation of the pattern of Genesis. 
Genesis begins with God, and then in chapter 3, things go bad. The people who God created to reflect who he is to the world disobeyed him. And then death came after sin. Death is not a part of the original design. Death is not what God called very good. And so here, what we see in Genesis, what we see here in Psalm 90, is that death is not a part of the original design. Death is a sentence. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. The Bible says that death wasn't always here. In other places, quite literally, death has entered. And so, we see that it's because of sin. And sin separates us from God. If God is the author of life, and we come apart from the author of life, apart from the author of life, there is no life. That explains death. And it's a double separation, really. We've separated ourselves from God by our sin. Because of sin, God separates himself from us. So in the moments when we feel how short life is, we're not meant to stay there. We're not meant to just stay, all right, I I realize how short life is. We're meant to go beyond that. We're meant to ask why. We're not meant to say life is short and leave it there. We're meant to feel that our frailty is a problem, that it's not what it should be. And friends, we feel this, honestly, it's hard. We feel it at every funeral we go to. We feel that this is not how it should be. Like death is not, death is not natural. It shouldn't be. Death is what the Bible calls, death is an enemy. So when we feel that it's our problem, it should bring us to our biggest problem. It's not our frailty. Our biggest problem is being under God's wrath. Verse 7 of Psalm 90 leaves us no wiggle room or resource to get out from under God's wrath. Verse 8 shows we have no excuse in this. And figuring out how to live, common philosophy of our day, is just all paths lead to the same place. Do whatever one you like. Dealer's choice. Well, you know, friends, they're right. All paths do lead to the same place. All paths lead to the place that verse 8 talks about. The light of God's presence. All paths lead there. And there you will be fully exposed. C.S. Lewis says this. In the end, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or designed or disguised. So when you come face to face with how short life is and the coming end, have you gotten real with the Lord, preparing to see him? That's what verse 11 would have us do. Friends, you may have felt the problem of frailty, that that death is a reality. You may have sensed, like, that's a problem. But if you stayed long enough there to think about what that means for you in your relation to the Lord. 
But everything we hide from ourselves won't be hidden before him. So if you haven't gotten real with God about your sin, then there is nothing you can imagine that it will be like when you face him. That's what verse 11 says. Nothing we can picture that would be like it. Charles Spurgeon says, it, it, fancies the wor- it, it, fancies, uh, it baffles words. It leaves imagination far behind. And beware, for there will be none to deliver then. So friend, if you haven't gotten real with God about how you will face him face to face, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Seriously. It's time to do that. But anytime we discuss God's wrath from his word, we can do so in light of the whole story. You see, while God is angry at our sin, he loves us to provide payment for our sin. There will be none to deliver that day when you see God's wrath face to face, but there is one to deliver today. There is no fire that consumes like God's anger and wrath. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, stood to absorb the fullness of God's wrath for the sin of those who would turn from their sin and believe in him. Friend, would you do that today? We need to hang out. I'd love to talk to you about that. Reflecting on God's wrath should make us treasure Jesus all the more. The one who knew no sin but became sin for us. The one who became a curse for us, it says in Galatians. The one who removes the sting of death. Maybe you need to take hold of that substitute for the first time today. All right, last part of the reflection. Moses goes to the Lord in a moment when he gets a heavy dose of reality. A moment of depth, of crisis, of reflection. He goes to God first. God in the past, he sees God's eternality. All that he's been to them. In light of God's eternality, he sees our temporality and sinfulness. But his closing prayer shows that God's eternality doesn't have to be just bad news. For God is a God of judgment and compassion, verse 13 says. So this is the pattern of our worship. Together and individually, we can get real with God about who God is, praise. We get real with God about who we are in light of his holiness, his confession. We get real with God about hope for a future going to him for grace, to ask him to live for him. So last part of the reflection, verses 12 to 17, will be short. God and people in the future. First, verse, uh, in verse 12, uh, we see the first of three requests that Moses asks of God, looking into the future. First request, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friends, we don't have much time here. Even though the time is short, the time's long enough for us to waste it. Even though the time is short, still, God can use us while we're here. So, numbering our days means that we strive to make each day count before God. Each day. One day at a time. Each moment count before the Lord. That is the path of wisdom. To live each day well before the Lord, we need a strength that's not our own. We need desires that aren't our own. We need wisdom 
and love and boldness, all not from us. It has to be from God. It has to be God's grace. Friends, we don't, need, we don't stop needing grace once we've been saved. We will need grace all the days of our lives. So friends, it's near the close of another year. Starting now, let's pray every day that God would give us grace to number that day. To be concerned, not in all the ways that we can stand how long we live, but to be concerned in all the ways we can live in light of the Lord this day. This day. So perhaps pray like this. Okay, Lord, you've saved me and I want to live for you. I want to bring you glory through all that I do and think and act and live today, this day, I want to do that. Lord, help me do that. Second request, verse 14, that Moses makes as he looks forward. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. As we look to, satis- we look to the, all the wrong things for satisfaction. All the wrong things. We might be able to keep our hearts buzzing for a while, with different things, but soon we'll have to move on. If anything, like our short attention spans should remind us of that. That we can have something for a while and throw it away, get bored. That should remind us that we were made for so much more than what we're giving to us in that moment, giving ourselves to in that moment. You were made by God. Consider that. Consider how he made you. You weren't made to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction in what's going to fade away. You weren't made to find satisfaction there. You were made for the Lord. That's who you were made for. So as Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. So old oak, add this to our daily prayer. Lord, we are constantly tempted to seek satisfaction in everything besides you. Show us that you can give us what nothing else can. We'll see that clearly, that this satisfaction will go far beyond balancing out the bad things we've uh, experienced, as verse 15 says. It'll be a glory beyond anything we can compare to. 2 Corinthians 4. Third request, last one. Hone in on the repeated line at the end of the psalm. Establish the work of our hands. Here's God's grace. All this is fading, including ourselves, as we consider. And although all this is fading, and although God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need us for anything. Jesus says, God is able to raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. Even though that, God is kind enough to allow us to take part in matters that are eternal Here is hope, friends, that our labor is not in vain. But for that to happen, for our labor not to be in vain, it must be what this psalm says. God must establish the work of our hands. So let's add this to our daily prayer. God, I want to number this day and to work to what will last forever. Establish my meager efforts in ways that only you are able That's a prayer for every day before you go to work, for every day before you do anything, for every day, for for every day of ministry that we're together, 
That should be our prayer. God, if you don't work, we labor in vain. If you don't establish it, it will fade. And friends, what a joy that he does build through our seemingly insignificant efforts. He does use it to his glory. So, life is short. What do you think about that? Do you think about it? Scan the past. Scan the present. Look to the future. God is there. And see yourself in light of him. And seek his grace for all your days. Let's pray. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You are our dwelling place now. And you will be our dwelling place tomorrow and forever. Lord, when we fear or despair all the things that are going away, would we look to you, who's never going away? When we fear or despair at what we're going through now, will we recount your faithfulness? See it in your word. See it in the history of your people. See it in our own lives and the lives around us. God, we consider not just that life is short, but that life is short because of sin. That death is an enemy and is an outcome of sin. When that causes us to cling to Christ all the more, who bore your wrath for our sin, that we may be at peace with you. And God, will we look to tomorrow, look to the future, asking you to help us number each day, one at a time, asking you to help to find our satisfaction in you, in you alone. And God, also, that you would establish the work of our hands, even our meager efforts, while we're here. We want to be faithful. And would you do what we can't, things that last eternally. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.